Hi, I'm the producer of A Public Affair, Jade Isiri Ramos. If you enjoy the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the station. We take donations all year long at wortfm.org. Thanks. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to place truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to A Public Affair on WORT in Madison. My name is Juliana Shemitas, and I'm filling in for Esti Dinur. Thank you so much to everyone who donated generously to the pledge drive. We did amazingly. Thank you for keeping this community radio station going. Folks in the Madison area are probably a little grumpy today because it's cold and it's mid-March, but I'm hoping that that chill in the bones will help us get into our conversation today, which is about the Arctic humans and the non-human world. Now, I'm sure listeners remember that this Monday, March 13th, the Biden administration approved a new enormous oil drilling project. It's an $8 billion drilling project in Arctic Alaska. This was despite Biden's campaign promises to halt drilling on federal lands and despite the opposition of environmentalist and local indigenous groups. There are lots of concerns about this project, which is led by the oil giant ConocoPhillips. It'll lead to a rise in emissions, some worry. Others are very worried that it will endanger freshwater sources and threaten migratory birds, caribou, whales, and other animals that live in the region. Today we're going to be taking this as a jumping off point to think about a long story of human and non-human interactions in the Arctic and how this drilling project fits within a longer history of exploitation and extraction of natural resources from this part of the world. Finally, to kind of misquote Tina Turner, we're going to ask what does capitalism have to do with it? Joining me today is an expert of the North American and Russian Arctic to help us answer some of these really tough questions. I'm so delighted to have her with us. Bachiba Demuth is an associate professor of history and the environment and society at Brown University. She's a public writer, and she's someone who knows how to train huskies and run dog sleds up in the Arctic. Welcome, Bachiba. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Juliana. It's really a delight to be able to join you today. Are things chilly over there in Providence, Rhode Island, too? Not enough for me, no. (laughs) (laughs) Great answer. Okay, so today we're going to be primarily discussing Bachiba's gorgeous first book. It's called Floating Coast, An Environmental History of the Bering Strait. It came out with Norton in 2019. It won eight major prizes and was selected by an incredible list of organizations um, and publications as best book of the year. The book starts in the middle of the 19th century. It brings us up through 1990, and it really tracks how human beings have interacted with non-human species in the Bering Strait. One of the many things that's brilliant and new about this book is that it's bringing us into this lesser known region of the world in really intimate detail. It shows us also how three different groups, North Americans, Russians, and indigenous populations interacted with that region. And once the story gets to 1917 and the outbreak of the Russian Revolution, Bachiba also looks at the differences and similarities between capitalist and communist approaches to nature. So, Bachiba, the beginning of your book really helps situate us, both kind of geographically and within almost the emotional space of your book. It's so beautiful. I was wondering if maybe we could start by having you read the the beginning of your book for us, maybe just the first paragraph of the prologue. Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. Um, Each morning in spring, the sandhill cranes rise pair by pair from the fields and marshes where they rest and turn their bodies north. They trill and honk on the wing, the sound filling the flyways of North America. By late April or May, they approach the Pacific Ocean's terminus, where the Seward and Chukchi peninsulas reach toward each other across the Bering Strait. 20,000 years ago, during the last ice age, the water passing beneath them was land. People hunted mammoths and caribou across a corridor of earth. Now, cleaved by just 50 miles of ocean, a geological and ecological unity remains in the territory, encircled by the Mackenzie and Yukon rivers in North America, 
the Anadir and Kolyma rivers in Russia, and the oceans north of St. Lawrence Island and south of Wrangell Island. From river to river and sea to sea, geographers call this country Beringia. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Bathsheba. One thing that I love about that passage in the context of where uh, I am sitting now is that we have these beautiful sandhill cranes that are moving between the Midwest and um, a region of the world that many of our listeners may be less familiar with. But I'm sure many of our listeners have seen the cranes flying through. And what's uh, beautiful about that passage, too, as it then continues, is how you link it up to your own flight, in a sense, from the Midwest. So I'm curious to hear you um, tell us a little bit about when your interest in this region started. Um, If I understand it correctly, when you were uh, kind of in your late teens, you worked in a small indigenous village called Old Crow running dog sleds in the Canadian Yukon. And I'm curious to learn more about your job then, and also um, how you were getting trained by a local indigenous leader on how not to die. <laughs> yeah, so I, um, when I was finishing high school, realized I didn't know what I wanted to study in college. And it seemed like an expensive and, if you're 18, very long time commitment to spend four years doing something um, you don't know the purpose of quite yet. So I convinced my parents I should take a gap year um, and, and had this kind of shoestring budget round the world itinerary planned where I was going to go to this village um, up in the Canadian Yukon, and then I was going to go to Costa Rica, and then I was going to go to various other places. And long story short, I've still never been to Costa Rica because I ended up staying um, in Old Crow for several years. And my job there, kind of the the thing that I was brought up to do was to help maintain a kennel of racing huskies for uh, a native family in this community. They both worked and taking care of dogs is, it's a full-time job plus some, um, I probably read too much Jack London as a kid, so it sounded like a pretty fun thing to go do. Um, I had no idea what working dogs were like. I had no idea what the Arctic was like. I'd really, well, I had lots of ideas, but actually no sort of practical (laughs) um, experience. Um, And so when I arrived, I realized pretty quickly how radically out of my depth I was um, as somebody who, you know, came from the Midwest. I grew up in a little town about three hours from Madison, um, not used to being at the bottom of the food chain, or at least not at the top of the food chain, which became very clear to me very fast. Um, And I also realized that I very much had to change kind of my orientation toward the world more generally, which implicitly, as I had grown up, had been one in which human beings are the kind of source of action out there doing things in the world. Um, And nature is like a beautiful thing that you go to see. Um, I liked being out in it, but had an essentially kind of passive understanding of what kind of wild areas were like. Um, Mm -hmm. Beautiful, but but not particularly dynamic in some sense. Mm -hmm. I had no idea at the time kind of where those ideas came from, like what that cultural inheritance was. I just knew very quickly when I arrived in the Arctic that it was totally wrong. (laughs) And if I kept thinking that way, I would be in real trouble Um, because not paying attention to what the weather is doing or whether it's the season that bears come out of their dens or if it's, um, you know, what what the dogs are communicating with their body language um, are all things that get you in real trouble. Absolutely. So since most of us probably have not been up in these regions, can you just give us a visceral sense of some of the things that you remember being struck by initially in terms of what the area looked like, felt like, smelled like, et cetera? Anything that that kind of viscerally stays with you? Yes. Um, So I arrived there in early August, which is somewhere between the end of summer and the beginning of fall. Um, Old Crow is about 80 miles north of the Arctic Circle. So the days are getting noticeably shorter uh, week by week. And I remember um, being incredibly struck just by the, the size of the country, right? Even coming from the edge of the Great Plains, where obviously we have you know, pretty dramatic vistas um, once you get out of the Driftless region, particularly. Um, but just the, the kind of scale of land between where human beings lived was, was really dramatic, right? It's a several hours flight from Dawson City, which is several hours from Whitehorse. Neither of these are very populous places. Um, I also remember being very immediately st- struck by the presence of 
animals sort of in sort of daily life, not just the dogs, which were obviously a major focus of what I was doing. But um, I went for an extremely misguided hike shortly after I arrived there up the mountain behind town and ran into some grizzly bear prints that were alarmingly nearby. (laughs) Um, And, you know, hearing wolves and seeing caribou within a couple of weeks of landing, just the, the kind of separation that I think often exists in more even rural spaces in the lower 48 um, was was just not there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And in some sense, that awareness really made it into this book of yours where, you know, several non-human animals play a really big role. Um, there are whales, there are walruses, there are caribou, there are salmon, there are, there are other animals as well. Can you maybe... Tell us about one or two of these central non-human elements or maybe even characters in your story. So uh, interestingly, after all of that that I just said about how much the the kind of presence of animals was this this memory that, that stayed with me from um, my first moments up in the north, when I started researching this book, I actually did not plan it to exist around particular animals. Um, I had gone intending to write a history of two towns, one on each side of the Bering Strait, and sort of compare them through the 20th century. And it did not take me very long of being in the archives to realize that over and over and over again, what every kind of source I was reading, or everybody I was talking to, what everything was sort of pointing toward was this moment in the 18th century when commercial whale ships from the East Coast of the United States arrive in the Bering Strait to hunt bowhead whales. And then that sent me kind of down this months-long rabbit hole of learning about bowhead whales, um, who end up being kind of a major character in the book, um, in part because they are just such fascinating animals. Um, They're enormous. They can weigh 100 tons. They're more than 40% fat by volume. So they're just, you know, these incredible layers of blubber on their bodies that they kind of generate for themselves by sifting krill out of the Bering Sea. Um, They can live for centuries. Like the the whale that I opened the book with is one who died when Bill Clinton was president and was born, you know, maybe when Thomas Jefferson was president, right? So they're as long lived as some countries are, longer lived than the Soviet Union. And they have this incredibly important role in the lives of people along the Bering Strait far before this era of commercial whaling. So they are um, integral for Yupik and Inupiaq communities, um, both in Russia and in the United States, um, for whom they have been food and shelter and warmth um, for thousands of years. um, And kind of beyond that have been critical pieces of sort of the social fabric of of human life, right? That that social fabric is extended beyond including just human beings to including whales um, and other kinds of animals. Um, So after I did this giant deep dive, I actually realized that this entire story in some way pivots on the ways in which different human societies have understood and related with this particular species and what those consequences have been. Fascinating. And in, in your story, you also pay a lot of attention to indigenous voices and indigenous understandings of the world. So I was curious to ask you to explain how local Yupik and Inupiaq communities situated these non-human elements, uh, whales, walruses, etc., within their very rich understandings of what time meant, of what life was all about. So th- this is a very kind of partial view of that, obviously, since I'm neither Yupik nor Nupiak, um, and it's this is coming through the the very generous work that's been shared by historians from within those communities um, and and present um, community practices also, because the relationship to whales remains a really critical piece of people's lives um, today as much as it did you know 150 or 200 years ago, um, and I think that for folks who understand hunting in kind of a Western framework where often what it entails is somebody going out and kind of proclaiming a a sense of dominance over a particular animal by killing it. I think the most extreme form of that is trophy hunting, but I think it permeates kind of other forms of Western hunting where it's a, it's a bit of an act of conquest Um, that whale hunting and other kinds of 
um, hunting practices around the circumpolar north are often far more focused on the fact that human beings are so incredibly reliant on these animals and reliant on these animals dying so that people don't starve over the winter and have enough furs to wear if they're hunting caribou, um, that it is more an act of supplication than it is one of dominance. And that kind of runs not just in a sort of vague orientation, but in the ways in which people understand whales as animals that observe human beings, um, that are kind of keeping track of what people are up to and are capable of making moral judgments based on what they're observing within human societies. So if you are not kind to your children and you're not generous to your elders, or if you are cruel to other animals or sort of generally not a sort of upstanding person in your community, that will be reflected in your ability to hunt successfully. Um, so it, it is kind of the moral judgment of the whales themselves that is critical um, to people being able to hunt, but also forms the way that people are expected to act within their own social worlds. Wow. So, you know, this understanding of whales in particular as being capable of making moral judgments and your success or failure as a hunter in part depends on how you live your life seems miles apart from how many of the commercial whalers of the mid-19th century thought about their practice and about the animals they were hunting. Your book really starts in, in the mid-19th century, and there you explain how whaling is an important part of how the United States became an imperial power in the Pacific. And then you say, quote, whales and their killers made manifest destiny maritime. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, so I think that one of the things that, um, you know, the, there's kind of a romantic view of 19th century whaling now. It kind of comes with a lot of lovely scrimshaw art and, a, you know, people's vague memories of having read Moby Dick in college. Um, and I think sometimes what that overshadows is that for the United States, which, you know, in this period sort of directly prior to, during, and then right after the Civil War, is a moment when the United States is actively and sometimes quite violently expanding its territory, right? And it's doing it over land by pushing west um, through kind of wars of conquest on the Great Plains and further south. And it's also doing it at sea. Um, and kind of in the maritime space, that sense of expansion is often actually led by commercial interests. And then the military or the Navy specifically kind of follows. And these whaling fleets were kind of at the sharp point of the, the U.S. Imperial project in many ways. They were um, driven themselves to go further and further, first um, south in the Atlantic, and then once they come around South America, kind of north through the Pacific, because they had whaled out the species that they were capable of hunting that were closer to home. So their own kind of need to be able to hunt whales is what's pushing them. Um, but as they go, they're, of course, mapping territories where American presence has not been or was very small before that, um, and charting waters and sort of acting as an edge of kind of U.S. empire um, all the way up to the Bering Strait, which when they first arrive is technically on the kind of maps that Europeans and Americans paid attention to, still owned by the Russian empire. Hmm. If you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT in Madison. My name is Juliana Shemitas, and this hour we're talking about natural resource exploitation in the Arctic with Bachiba Demuth. If you have questions about the Arctic, its history, natural resources, if um, you have lessons that you have learned from the non-natural world that you'd like to share, feel free to give us a call at 608-256-2001. So... Fascinating, Bashiba, to learn about whaling as, um, you know, figuratively and literally the sharp point of American imperialism. I'm curious to now think about communism and capitalism side by side, because that's something that you do so masterfully in the book and something that's so special about this region, which, uh, you know, bizarrely enough, very few scholars have taken advantage of this <laughs> um, issue, which is that it's a region that bridges two supposedly very distant and distinct parts of the world, North America and Eurasia. 
and the distances are tiny. Um, as I was researching this show, I learned that in 1987, a young American swimmer, for instance, decided to help ease Cold War tensions by swimming between an Alaskan island and an island in the Soviet Union. And it was just a distance of 2.7 miles. Very striking, you know. Um, so I'd love for you to take us up to the period after the Russian Revolution. One would expect, on first blush, that the communist relationship with commerce and the natural world would be different from how North American capitalist exploiters did their business. Was it different? That was absolutely my expectation when I started this book, quite naively, when I trotted off to the archives, was to basically be able to think with this part of the world to understand the kind of contrast between sort of socialist development and its relationship with an environment and, and the capitalist counterpart. And what I found is that in many cases, um, I think out of a combination of actually having some similarities in the kind of core way that both the kind of Marxist project in the Soviet Union and the capitalist project in the United States understood what a human being was and what the kind of proper relationship between a human and the kind of world around them. I think there's more shared there than I expected. And that contributed to some moments of confluence. I think also the environments that um, the Soviet Union and the United States were operating in themselves played a role. Um, I think one of the places this is most striking is that for the United States, um, which kind of has this moment of boom whaling in the 19th century, the Soviet Union in the 20th century basically goes on to do exactly the same thing. Um, and with exactly the same consequences for whales, which are extremely dire, um, and in some cases push some species fairly close to extinction. But when the Soviet Union sort of arrives in the Bering Strait, um, which really doesn't happen to the 1920s, because um, it's so far away from, from Moscow, one way to think about this distance is that the places that I was researching on the Russian side of the Bering Strait are closer to Washington, D.C. than they are to Moscow. Um, so it, it's a very long country on the east-west axis. So the Russian Revolution takes a long time to arrive there. And when it does, the kind of early Soviet planners look at capitalist whaling and say, this is an unbelievably exploitative and wasteful practice. They kind of hold it up as the kind of ultimate in um, just sort of capitalist miseries, both because of the way it treats laborers on whale ships, which is not usually a job that many people are just desperately seeking to do and because it has such an enormous kind of ecological toll um, and they set out to do better um, and actually for a couple of years have a, a sort of restrained kind of careful understanding of how many whales should be killed but by the 1950s and 1960s are whaling with absolute abandon, like as much abandon as ever happened in the capitalist system. But now they're doing it with these, you know, 20th century technologies that let them kill far more whales. And so to me, there's this kind of ironic mirroring that despite the fact that the Soviet Union is both interested in doing better than capitalism and um, sort of aware of some of the pratfalls, the, the kind of drive to have economies constantly grow is so shared by both parties um, that they end up looking quite similar in the end. Hmm. Can you say a little bit more about what you see as the process through which that mirroring happens? Do you think there was explicit learning from North American whaling practices and a, and a kind of concerted decision at a certain point in the 40s or 50s or 60s to mimic those practices? Or do you see it as more of a slippery slope uh, driven by I don't know, demand back at home for more and cheaper goods, something like that, or something else. <laughs> I think there's kind of two big things that that transform the Soviet whaling program. And one of them is the Second World War, which I think in the United States, sometimes people forget just the enormous burden and set of consequences that the Soviet Union bore in that conflict. They lost 30 million people. Most of the industry has to be pulled back um, on the east of the Ural Mountains. So basically imagine picking up all of your heavy industry and trying to move it over a mountain range in the middle of a war so that you can have kind of any productive industry left. Um, massive food shortages as a result of 
you know, sometimes land loss, sometimes simply because they didn't have enough people um, able to work on farms. Um, so the Soviet Union kind of comes out of the war um, with a huge protein and fat shortage nationally, just in terms of needing to be able to feed its people. Um, and I found a, actually a letter in the Soviet archives written by um, the captain of the, the Far Eastern whaling fleet, um, who at the time had one ship. And he's writing to Stalin to say, you know, there is this enormous source of protein and fat in the oceans. It's just waiting. All we need is the technology, just a little bit of investment, and we can bring home more food. And so that is a really kind of existential reason that I think pushes the, the kind of Soviet whaling industry in that early period. But I think once it gets going, there's kind of an internal momentum within the Soviet economic process, um, which is not driven by market demand the way that it would be you know, on the US side if the US had been eating whale in the 20th century. It's driven by the kind of Soviet planning process, which um, sort of each year sets out the kind of target numbers for every industry. And those target numbers have an enormous amount of ideological baggage to them. They're not just like, you know, please make this many pairs of shoes if you work in, you know, your factory. It comes with the idea that if you're making that number of shoes, you're also making socialism real. And if you make more than that number of shoes, you're making socialism real faster. So that there's huge kind of pressure put on people to not just kind of meet the planned goals, but to exceed them. And initially whaling, because of all the new technology that the Soviet Union has, these big, you know, fossil fuel powered factory fleets, they can constantly exceed the plan. So if you are on one of these Soviet whaling ships, you're not just, you know, a nice worker getting their job done. You are really, you're a hero of socialist labor. And I think that that kind of pressure to just keep producing, right, the, the way to measure that a society is on the right track and is doing the right thing comes from the production numbers um, in a way that's, that's sort of very acute and visible in the kind of archive of this Soviet whaling industry, but I think has a lot of echoes in how capitalist systems also evaluate themselves, right? Like we listen in the evenings to hear what the Dow Jones is doing. And there's a sense that if those numbers are going up, even if you don't really pay much attention to the stock market, that's a good thing. And if they're going down, that's maybe not so good. And so that kind of quantified, um, kind of sense that growth equals sort of health is actually, I think, for both the United States and the Soviet Union, a pretty potent idea in this period. It's really interesting how, despite the fact that capitalism and socialism are so different as human economic endeavors, they could end up having kind of similar ecological consequences, as, as your book shows. Um, so one thing that I that I wanted to ask you about was about these kind of three distinct categories, right? The the North American, the indigenous, and um, the Russian, and then Soviet. I was interested in in seeing whether you noticed on the ground instances of cross pollination, instances in which there were attempts by one of your groups to win over other groups mm -hmm. to their understandings of um, the environment, to their understandings of how to generate wealth sustainably for a society, et cetera? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and I think one thing to kind of remember about the Bering Strait is that now it seems like this absolute hard line between sort of Russian space on the one side and American space on the other side. But that border as like a a very kind of strict nation state border really only comes into being in 1948. So in many ways, it's more the exception than it is the rule in terms of, of human history. Um, and so there was actually, you know, for native peoples around the Bering Strait, sharing back and forth is the norm um, that has been disrupted only really in the last 70 years or so. And I think the you know, even once the United States and the Soviet Union, who always kind of look at each other askance, um, the Soviet, early Soviet planners actually spend a lot of time looking at U.S. education policy in Alaska. Um, 
They have very similar ideas about wanting to come in and, quote, civilize indigenous populations by um, kind of enforcing literacy and um, you know, ideas about gender roles and, and particularly by changing people's economic form, right? In the United States, the U.S. is interested in making people into private property owners and proprietors and kind of contributors to a growth economy in a capitalist sense. And in the Soviet Union, the emphasis is on taking people who had anything that looked remotely like a capitalist tendency, um, owning property. In the case of the folks who live inland on the Chukchi Peninsula, the Chukchi people, they owned private property in the form of reindeer herds. The Soviet Union wanted to get rid of those. Um, so the, the Soviets are definitely looking at kind of U.S. education and um, kind of assimilationist policies for models. Um, the United States later becomes extremely worried that there are too many Native people living close to the border with Russia who might have allegiances that go the other way and vice versa. So there's also some concern about kind of security um, sort of national security up here. Herbert Hoover gets kind of um, concerned about that uh, during the Cold War. But I think some of the the really interesting moments of sort of knowledge transfer and kind of attempts to win people over happen around, um, there's a couple of moments in the Soviet Union in particular where, you know, for example, these very passionate young Bolsheviks, you know, arrive, they're extremely fired up about bringing Marxism to the Chukchi Peninsula. They're very, you know, ambitious. They're committed to what they're doing. And they know that part of what they have to do is change how people herd reindeer. Most of these people have never seen a reindeer before in their lives. So it's a pretty tough job, frankly. Um, they just know <laughs> that they need to like get reindeer into collective farms, but, you know, they, they couldn't identify you know, a reindeer probably without a little help. So they actually spend a lot of time hanging around with Chukchi, just talking about reindeer to sort of learn, you know, how, how do you take care of these animals? What do they need? You know, can they be kept in corrals all year? Do they still need to migrate? All, all of that sort of basic reindeer stuff um, is something that the Soviet Union first has to learn from indigenous reindeer herders. Um, and then they sort of take that knowledge and proceed to kind of come back to it sometimes quite violently and try to reform how it is that that reindeer herding is happening. Um, I think other places that you see kind of indigenous pushback or um, ways in which native communities are maintaining a sense of their own kind of values and priorities as separate to these assimilationist pushes and processes, both in Russia and in the United States um, is around um, kind of moments, for example, during the gold rush on the Seward Peninsula, which sees, you know, 20,000 people showing up in the course of a summer to try to extract gold from this place. Um, and the ways in which oral histories in Inupiaq communities from that area are very explicit about looking at this activity as somewhere between completely nonsensical like, why, why would you come up here to get this metal that is actually useless, right? You can't eat it. You can't use it for tools because it's too soft. Like, you have to put an enormous amount of cultural value on gold to make it have much utility. And it, it didn't have that cultural value for Yupik. So an activity that's, on the one hand, nonsensical, and then the other hand, quite actively destructive, right? Because so many people are moving in so quickly. And there are very, um, you know, cogent and... I think, perceptive um, kind of diagnoses of the way that capitalism strips people of sometimes of their autonomy that you pick observers make of these gold rushers, that they're, they're all coming in, they're all doing the same thing. Um, they all seem to be totally possessed by this kind of one goal. They're not attached to families or to communities. Um, they're kind of these free floating people. There's no one to take care of them when they get sick, um, which you know, if you think about it as kind of a diagnosis of some of the primary ills of an extraordinarily capitalist society, um, they're they're pretty spot on. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, it runs counter to the idea that capitalism sets you free and allows the individual to determine their own destiny when you have, uh, you know, clearly another story that that indigenous communities are seeing unfolding before their eyes. That's really fascinating. 
as you were talking about strategies of resistance of the Native communities in this area, I wondered if you could situate your story within a current day context that many of our listeners would be familiar with and the strategies of resistance that present day indigenous communities are using to uh, resist theft and seizure of natural resources within their territories. How do you see your story teaching us something within that broader framework? I mean, I think for one thing, nothing in this story is particularly new to Indigenous folks at all, right, who, who don't need taught this history. Um, I think more generally, to me, what the, the kind of history that I found around the Bering Strait is that the, the kind of habit of outsiders to come to this part of the world with the expectation that they can take as many resources as, as they need with very little consequence is an old one, right? It goes back to this period in the 19th century and it just kind of unfurls sequentially. You know, there, there's like a bunch of these rushes. There's an oil rush for whale oil. There's a gold rush for gold. There's an oil rush for petroleum in the 20th century and in the 21st century. And the dynamics of those booms are often really similar on the ground. Um, they tend to leave a great deal of ecological chaos in their wake for the communities that are closest to wherever this boom is happening. There's also an enormous social chaos. Um, the, the gold rush being maybe the most kind of startling example just because of the sheer numbers of people who came north so quickly um, and had to be fed and housed basically overnight. Um, but, you know, these these kinds of cycles are are not new and therefore the kind of methods of resistance and resilience and kind of community um, articulation that I think are particularly after Standing Rock, something that Americans outside of indigenous spaces are paying more attention to, have a, have a very long history, right? In Alaska, they go back to the very um, the beginning of these booms and obviously elsewhere in the United States where that history of kind of capitalist or imperial arrival is much longer they go back just as far. Um, so it's, I think sometimes it gets phrased as a kind of newness when actually it is a sort of a deep tradition within these communities. And part of the reason that these communities retain their community status. Absolutely. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT in Madison. My name is Juliana Shemitas, and this hour we're talking about natural resource exploitation in the Arctic with Bachiba Demuth. If you have questions for her, if you have questions about the Arctic and natural resources and indigenous communities, give us a call at 608-256-2001. So before we run out of time, Bachiba, I did want to have you bring kind of take us behind the scenes for a minute here. So you're a historian and in order to piece together this story, you had to draw on an incredible wealth of sources. Um, I'm almost reminded of histories of the pre-modern era that have to get really, really creative in the choice of sources that are available to them. Can you maybe bring us into one or two of the sources that you were really delighted to work with and just give mm -hmm. us a sense of how you worked through them and what role they ended up playing in your story. That's such a good question. It's like a historian's favorite question, I think. Um, and it's it's true this book drew on, I think, a, a wider range of types of sources, in part because, you know, the Bering Strait has an incredibly long human history, but it's never had particularly high human density at any one time. Um, other than these gold rush moments that are kind of aberrations, not that many people live there. So they're just the number of stories and pieces of paper that filter out of the place are significantly less than if I was trying to write an environmental history of Madison, um, for example, right? Then I'd be drowning in, in too much paper. Um, but that said, a lot of, particularly in the 20th century, when you're dealing with kind of what the United States and the Soviet Union uh, produce it in a kind of bureaucratic level about this place, there's a lot of similarity in those sources. So you're like, here I am reading another report about this year's, you know, seal harvest in this village. And then you turn the page and you're reading the next year's report about the seal harvest in the same village. And there's not a lot of narrative or character depth in those pieces, right? They're very helpful for other reasons. So I think some of my favorite sources were places where 
you know, you could find an identifiable person um, or sort of get to know a person through seeing them in various places around the archives. Um, one of those people um, who left a, a sort of short but very interesting kind of handwritten in Russian autobiography um, in an archive in Anadir is this young man named Malu. He's a Yupik man um, who in the late 20s becomes a really kind of ardent Bolshevik um, so he kind of he commits to the to the Soviet cause um, and reading through the ways in which he kind of took in Marxist ideas about, you know, social life and economic life and the ways that he used those sometimes to serve ends within his his own community that had nothing to do with Marxism whatsoever. Um, that was one of the most fascinating documents and felt like a, a window into a moment in someone's life that very easily could have been unretrievable if, if he had not written this down and it had not survived for a hundred years. Um, so I think he was one of my favorite sources. Um, I also felt in the sections on commercial whaling in the 19th century that there were a couple of logbook writers who who kind of broke out of the model of just writing the latitude and the longitude and the weather and the number of whales killed, which is honestly what most whaling logbooks contain, um, <laughs> and would actually sort of talk about what they were feeling. There was one logbook writer who was the most homesick person I have ever met. Like this poor man was so miserable all the time and was just constantly pining for home and hated the food so much. Um, but kind of within his diagnosis of of why he was unhappy, you sort of got this picture of whaling ship life when they weren't actually killing whales, which is much of the time you're on a ship. And like, how do you keep yourself from sort of succumbing to the boredom? Um, and and so the, that was another place where um, I felt really honored in some ways to have been able to to find those words. Excellent. So your story brings us relatively close to the modern day. Your book ends in 1990. How would you describe the importance of the rise of the environmentalist movement and what happened thereafter in your story? So I think the the kind of mainstream American environmental movements show up in a couple of places in this book. There's some progressive era, early 1900s kind of wildlife regulations that are really um, they kind of come out of the Teddy Roosevelt school of wildlife preservation, right? You want you want some wildlife left over so that very masculine American elites can go hunt things. <laughs> um, that's that's a little too glib, but you know that that's a lot of the content there. And some of those laws end up arriving in Alaska by the early twentieth um, century. And then there's another kind of wave of environmental activism. Um, as probably many of your listeners know, in the, the 60s and the 70s. And versions of that really focus on whaling. So the other place for me that environmentalism kind of bumps into this story very explicitly is um, in Greenpeace's opposition to the Soviet commercial whaling fleet. Um, so by the 20th century, the United States isn't whaling itself anymore. Um, so whaling activists who are located in the U.S. are for the most part protesting what the Soviet Union and to some extent Japan are doing with their industrial whaling operations. Um, and that's kind of a fascinating story. The Greenpeace gets its start actually as an anti-nuclear organization and then finds out that both the U.S. and the Soviet Union use um, the oil that sperm whales produce in their heads to lubricate intercontinental ballistic missiles. So Greenpeace sort of says, well, the fate of human beings at the hands of nuclear weapons and the fate of whales at the hands of whale hunters, killing them for nuclear weapons are kind of, you know, joined and, and become a sort of staunchly anti-whaling organization. And it's in kind of that conflict between, um, be between these Soviet whaling ships and, and Greenpeace um, that you kind of most actively see that this kind of um, mainstream environmentalism bubbling up. Hmm. And in a sense, though, Greenpeace also misunderstands the indigenous relationship with whaling. 
Yes, I'd say early Greenpeace and and the kind of contemporary leadership at Greenpeace is working to kind of repair this history. But um, Greenpeace becomes such an anti-whaling organization that they are opposed to anybody whaling anywhere for any reason, including indigenous people whaling for food and for cultural reasons. Um, so Greenpeace does not have a particularly good reputation um, in native spaces in the north because of this history, which sometimes has been extremely... Um, somewhere between violent and rhetorically violent. It's it's not been a particularly pleasant one. And I think, you know, Greenpeace's kind of position emerges from, in many ways, it's kind of the inverse of the, the idea that, you know, people should be able to kill as many whales as they want to for industrial purposes. You just invert it and say people should never kill any whales at all. And both of those kind of keep a very fundamental separation between human beings and, and nature at their core. Um, they're not the same ideas. They have very different ecological consequences. But I think ideologically, they're actually closer than you might imagine. And they have very little to do with how Yupik or Inupiaq communities understand their relationship with, with whales or the rest of their environment. Mm-hmm. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT. And if you have questions for our guest, Bathsheba Demuth, an expert on the Arctic and its history, please give us a call at 608-256-2001. So I wanted to loop back to where we started with the Willow Project and the Biden administration's decision about oil drilling in the Alaskan Arctic. So one way to think about this is that there's nothing new under the sun. But I wondered uh, what else you would tell listeners uh, who are eager to contextualize what's going on today and situate it within a longer history. So, I mean, I think in the sense that an oil rush for the Arctic that will mostly benefit people outside the north is not new, right? In some ways, that's that's the dynamic that starts with whaling and, and continues into the present. Um I think the, the the sort of situation with the Willow Project and with other kinds of developments in the Arctic right now are also places where the the kind of um, discussions of indigenous sovereignty and activism that you brought up earlier are also really really highlighted. Right, the the kind of groundswell of activism trying to keep Biden from approving this project was massive, and it was led by young indigenous people, many of whom are from the Arctic. Um, and, you know, I think I think the fact that the Biden administration went ahead is a is kind of telling as to who gets to stand in the room at the end of the day. Um, in a way that's not surprising, but to me is actually very disappointing. Um, it's it's not breaking with any any history here, um, and I think is a demonstration of the the kind of dynamics that exist in much of the circumpolar north, which is that the people who have the final say over what does and doesn't happen around industrial development don't live there. Um, it's not to say, you know, some folks in Alaska, including some native folks, are very pro the Willow Project, right? It's not, this is not a clear cut like us um, situation, um, in part because if you live in a society where market dynamics are the kind of the lay of the land, being able to make an income isn't really an option, right? You, you cannot opt out of capitalism very easily at the moment. Um, and so projects like this do have you know, that appeal for, for some folks. Um, I also think, however, that the, the framing of the Willow Project in the press um, kind of generally has tended to set it up as being the Biden administration versus environmentalists or environmentalists plus Native activists. And that is kind of profoundly missing the point, which is that the oil that is in the ground there, if we want any hope of meeting the U.S. obligations under the Paris Accords, has to stay in the ground. That's not a political issue. That's just sort of a basic how much carbon can we put in the atmosphere issue. Um, and I think that that has, has often fallen by the wayside of understanding this as, a, oh, there's two camps um, and they're just haggling over, you know, how this one piece of politics goes. Um, Yes, absolutely. That's that's such a powerful way to think about it. Um, 
kind of to that point, I'll, I'll ask you one last question before we close out. And that is about your book and its moral force. So, you know, your book, Floating Coast and Environmental History of the Bering Strait, is brimming with historical and ecological insights and knowledge and wisdom. But it also has a strong normative impulse to it. It has a moral force. For you, nature and the non-human world are also teaching us lessons. What are some of those lessons for you? So I think one of the things that I learned from spending a lot of time up there, um, as opposed to the kind of archival side of the research, um, and I think you're right that those those two things kind of often are, are coming together, um, the, the experiences informing the reading of the archives, um, is a sense of kind of profound humility in the face of a world that is so much larger than any one person, right? It was, in some ways that goes back to the like, how do you not die question? Um, and, and how you don't die is that you do not imagine that you at the end of the day have the final say. Um, and I think that in writing this book, part of my hope was to give people a way to see history as something that's not entirely constructed by human beings, right? To have a sort of broader sense of human humility in the face of the the broader sets of forces that actually both enable us and sometimes constrain us um, and that require that we pay attention to them if we are going to make decisions so that we don't die in kind of a more collective sense. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think the other thing is that you know, life in the in the north is so incredibly dynamic, and it's um, it's this space where you just sort of are constantly watching things transform into something else, um, and that 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 kind of sense of the world as being um, open to possibility, and you know, the, the the very title "floating coast" comes from the the sea ice, which part of the year is of course liquid and you cannot walk across and then part of the year is solid so that you could actually just walk from you know what is now the united states to what is now russia um, on a solid surface and then it goes away again right none of these things are fixed um, there's this sort of constant cyclic um logic behind things that i uh i think often doesn't find a space in history because they're very linear narratives of first this then that how do you get from point a to point b Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for for closing us on that note, the reminder of uh, the fragility of our existence, but at the same time, the creative possibilities we have for changing the world as we know it. But Shiva Demuth, it's been such a pleasure to chat. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Juliana. You had such wonderful questions. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for Public Affair, and we will see you again soon. Take care. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like-